Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. So as we're recording this and as it comes out, February is coming to an end. But we've covered a lot of ground when it comes to romantic comedies. We just watched Cinderella. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> of course. And as we've discussed, this is an area that you have more expertise and knowledge than I do. And we were recently also talking about actors that are in that group of like, you know them, but you're not sure from where. So I was curious, Samantha, for today's question, is there kind of a romantic comedy sidekick trope that you recognize? And also, are there some actors that you feel like show up in that role? Oh, yeah. Sandra Oh comes to mind first thing because you have her in both Sideways, Mm -hmm. which she is kind of the bartender girl that gets hooked up with the best friend, as well as I still love Under the Tuscan Sun, which I love that movie because I love Italy anyway. But Sandra Oh is the lesbian best friend who ends up coming to live with her. (laughs) which is a whole other conversation uh, in Italy. So I think of her because there's so many of the sidekicks who are people of color, women of color, or uh, marginalized communities. Like it's the best gay friend trope type Mm -hmm. of thing. It's always that. So that's Mm -hmm. what I think of. And Sandra Oh, who, you know, as a Korean American, as a Korean woman, didn't see many Mm -hmm. Korean actors in American or more Western uh, romantic movies. So seeing her was kind of nice also as a like comedy in -hmm. general. And and yes, they're always typically the sidekick. (laughs) Right. And I feel like even in the things that you and I have watched through this show together, I have picked up on like, oh, like even Sex in the City that was kind of going on. And then Sleepless in Seattle, you can see that. Right. (laughs) Right. So it is a very big trope. And since we have been talking a lot about rom-coms, we wanted to bring back another classic episode about this very thing of romantic comedy sidekicks. So please enjoy. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And this is part three of our summer series on romantic comedies. That's right. And this one is dedicated to the sidekick. Yes, and I'm dedicating it personally and specifically to Judy Greer. Oh, she's the queen of the sidekicks. She is the sidekick queen. And there was this great article that we read about her. Um, It was published right after she wrote her book. I don't know where you know me from. Yes. And and the, she, the title is derived from her actual life because people are always coming up to her saying, I know you from something. And she's gotten so adept at being able to judge based on the person's age and, and other factors what movie you know her from because she's been in a million romantic comedies in addition to some things that are just roms or just coms or some drums even. Yes. Um, but she's fascinating and her career perspective is, is 
refreshing when especially coming from someone in Hollywood because she's really focused on just furthering and building her career steadily rather than the meteoric rise of some huge blockbuster celebrity and that's translated into a really relatively for Hollywood anyway long career yeah i mean and she has starred in some films uh, like The Descendants. She, uh, I don't know if it's still on the air, but she was starring on FX's Married, which is a sitcom where she does play more of a straight man to uh, the husband's character. Um, but in one of those interviews I was reading with her, she was joking about how she has been a sidekick to all the Jennifers. <sighs> and at one point, it was just her plan to see if she could work her way through like all of the Kates and Rachels. And then when she's basically just gotten all of the the names out of the way, she could retire because she's made a, 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 a really profitable career for herself as every single rom-com's sidekick. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't know what it is. I think she's she's able to play sensitive and vulnerable. She's able to play catty and snarky. She's able to play just about anything, including the character on Arrested Development with the cross-eyed nipples. Kitty. Yeah, she's <laughs> able to play completely off the wall. Um, and before we came in the studio, Caroline, I was Googling around for a, a few final sidekick thoughts and ran across a Hello Giggles slideshow about sidekicks who deserve their own movies. Yes. And Judy Greer characters were in three of them. So it was <laughs> Judy Greer in The Wedding Planner, mm-hmm. Judy Greer in 13 Going on 30, mm-hmm. and Judy Greer in 27 Dresses, which I think really the editor should have seen that and said, hey, writer, why don't you just write a longer essay about how much Judy Greer just needs her own movie. Yeah. Well, you know what? Uh, I came into the living room the other night. Uh, I had been working and uh, my boyfriend was watching What Women Want. I didn't make him watch it. I didn't turn it on. I didn't suggest we watch romantic comedies as research for this series, Kristen. I walked into the living room And he was just watching Mel Gibson and Helen Hunt duke it out, screwball style, in What Women Want. And Judy Greer is in it. And Judy Greer is in it. Doesn't she play an assistant of some sort? She plays Aaron, the nervous and mousy file assistant, who Mel Gibson, after being able to read women's minds, is really concerned that she's going to hurt herself. Oh, yeah. So he, like, busts into her apartment, and they end up having, like, a really emotional conversation, and Aaron slash Judy feels, like, really validated, finally. Um, Yeah, that's not a good movie. No, it's a, it's a horrible movie. And I have a feeling, uh, because Judy Greer seems like a really rad lady, I have a feeling that if she were just chatting with us, maybe off mic, she would also agree. Yeah. Um, but there was an interview with her from a few years back in Refinery29 where they asked her her favorite rom-com sidekick. And you want to take a guess? Oh, oh, I feel like I knew. No, I don't know. She said Kit from Pretty Woman because she liked her. Oh, spunk. her favorite. I thought you meant her own like oh, character. Oh, yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Kit. Kit's pretty spunky. Yeah. She liked Kit and also Sandy in Tootsie, which she said was a bit of a stretch. And I uh, sadly have tried to watch Tootsie. I kid you not. Three times. What happens? I fell asleep every single time. <laughs> I, <laughs> I was determined to watch it because Deep Cut 
There is a, a now deceased, sadly, podcast called Professor Blastoff. And one of the hosts on there, Kyle Dunnigan, uh, would do, do this, this funny Tootsie impression and loves the movie Tootsie. And so one uh, cabin weekend, I rented Tootsie from the library, ladies what? and gentlemen. How old are you? It was like two years ago. <laughs> okay. And I tried to watch Tootsie and I would fall asleep every single time. It was like right after Dustin Hoffman would walk out as Tootsie, boom, asleep. It just has this effect on me. <laughs> That's no, my college roommate and I tried to watch um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy about three times before we finally stayed awake for it. We like drank coffee. I mean, we were prepped. That's a cute movie. Um, and I haven't read the books. I'm sorry. But speaking of Tootsie, though, there's another sidekick in that movie who's always in this top sidekick list, which is Bill Murray's character yeah. in that movie. And in the moment when he calls Dustin Hoffman slash the lady character a slut for being kissed by a dude. <laughs> See, I could follow up on that, Caroline, but I was probably asleep when yeah. it happened. It's been a long time since I've seen Tootsie, so I can't add too much to that. I will say one of my favorite sidekick couples um, is Jess and Marie from When Harry Met Sally. In fact, I, at some points, when I'm when I'm watching that movie, am really just more invested in uh, Bruno Kirby and Carrie Fisher, mm -hmm. who start out as a sidekicks, but then they get together. And I really love their relationship because, of course, Harry and Sally are able to kind of play off of them. But I find them such a more believable couple yeah. than Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan. Yeah, yes. and But that is the curse slash blessing of the sidekicks, plural. Uh they're often allowed to be way more human and flawed and believable and snarky and have a diverse array of, I don't know, ethnic backgrounds, weights, heights, personalities, whatever, than the leading couples tend to do. But then the fact that a lot of times they aren't as normatively attractive, especially if they're women or maybe they're more overweight, like a Jack Black in High Fidelity, mm -hmm. or then you get into the territory of, oh, are we doing the token black sidekick, token black friend who has bits of knowledge knowledge to drop every now and then. Um, it's a lot of times those differentiating factors that the film subtly communicates are the reasons why they're not the leading man or lady. Right. Like Janine Garofalo's character in Reality Bites. Like she's too sexual. She's too out there. She doesn't have enough ambition. She works at the Gap. So she, that character, relegated to the sidekick role. I love that sentence. She has too much <laughs> ambition. She works at the Gap. No, not enough ambition. Not enough ambition. Oh, I thought you said she has too much ambition. <laughs> because if you were telling my 14-year-old self, I'd be like, heck yeah. No, I cannot fold a sweater to save my life so i could not get a job at the gap um who else what are some what are who are some of your other favorites well speaking of janine garofalo mm -hmm. i wanted to know your thoughts about sidekick turned romantic lead in the truth about cats and dogs because <laughs> we walk into the movie yes. with obviously you know janine garofalo being more of the sidekick because she is more of the sidekick when you size her up next to, literally and figuratively, next to Uma Thurman, mm -hmm. who's this model. She's a little bit dumber in the film. And, of course, she has to use her to um, get to the handsome guy with the dog. Um, so what do you think about how 
that sort of do you think it flips the whole sidekick thing on its head a little bit? Yeah. I mean, there's all there's also so much of that typical uh, romantic comedy deception. Yes. So much of that Shakespearean deception, um, where she does have to pretend that she is Uma Thurman and vice versa. Uh, but yeah, I think it does. I think it's an interesting twist on putting the sidekick as the main, main role. In high school, one of my favorite sidekicks was, uh, Lily Sobieski and Never Been Kissed. She was Drew Barrymore's nerdy friend. Yeah. And there's this, line that for some reason my best friend and I thought was so funny when she and Drew Barrymore go for a froyo or something like that for the first time and she gets really excited when Drew Barrymore asks her what she wants to be because she just has this laundry list of things that starts off I want to be a painter I want to be a potter I want to see the world and like Drew Barrymore just falls in love with her in that moment and it's actually like this really sweet moment of bonding because for Lily Sobieski's character, she feels seen and accepted for the first time, which may I may or may not have been able to kind of personally relate to when I was watching that myself in high school. Um, that's a movie whose rom-com deception I do not approve of at all. I think it's super gross and creepy because, okay, so basically if you've never seen, never been kissed, Drew Barrymore... You know, she had her own, her character had her own nerdy high school experience and she grows up. She's a journalist and she goes undercover in high school as a student to get a story. I can't remember what the story was. Something about baseball? Yeah, I don't know. Because her brother went back for baseball? I don't know. Who's to say? But anyway, so she's playing a student, but the whole movie is setting her up to be the romantic interest and vice versa of Michael Vartan. And... Then at the end, you know, never been kissed. They finally kiss. And it's like, ew, Michael Vartan, you've been a teacher this whole time. And assuming that she's a student. And now you're like, but he knew Caroline you know, he... when he thought she was a student that it couldn't work. Yeah, of course, as it factors for sure. <laughs> I really gross. can't defend it. Don't try to defend that. But let's talk about Clueless, because I think that Clueless contains two of the very best lady sidekicks. Yeah. One could ask for with Dion, who... It's hard to say that she's even a sidekick because she's really her own woman. Yeah. But Ty, grooving with the homies? Come on. And (laughs) R.I.P. Brittany Murphy while we're at it. Like, Uh. she's so good because you have a magical makeover. She's a sidekick. She's so loyal. But then she comes into her own. She does come into her own. Yes. And then she becomes a snidekick. Oh. Yeah. Telling Cher that you're nothing but a virgin who can't drive. Oh, burn. Sick burn. What a burn. Well, and speaking of sidekick burns, I love the meta moment in Romy and Michelle's high school reunion when, uh, which I did see from start to finish, finally, for the first time in preparation for this series, <laughs> Caroline, my movie watching, I really caught up to like at least... 1993, I think now pop culture wise. Oh, well, and you know, the people, the people who follow us on Facebook are demanding that we do a mystery science theater 3000 style rom-com watching. Yes. Yes. And I was like, I at first I was skeptical that anyone would like stay with us through that experience because it's a long, I mean, a whole movie, it's like an hour and a half. But but, you know, if they'll do it, I'll do it. We could try. We can always try. Have some cocktails. Um, but I love that moment where Romeo and Michelle you know, pull off on the side of the road and get in a fight all because of the sidekick burn 
where I, I don't know if it's Lisa Kudrow who says it first or Mia Sorvino who says, I'm the Mary and you're the Rhoda. <laughs> you know, because they've been equals for so long. Yeah. And they're like, no, I'm not. I can't even do the, the <laughs> accent. I wish I could. It's such a perfect accent. Uh, but that's <laughs> that's the moment. That's what splits them up. One of them calling the other a sidekick. Oh. oh, you don't want your friend to call you a sidekick. No, it's so hurtful, especially for two two ladies who are just really, you know, one and the same. I know they invented post-its oh. <laughs> together, <laughs> together. Um, so <laughs> let's talk about, though, the purpose of the sidekick, because obviously they're such a staple of the rom-com oh, formula yeah. that there must be a reason they're there. Yeah, well, I mean, you could, again, you could almost look back to Shakespeare or the whole uh, or even the uh, Greek chorus part of Greek tragedies, you know, having the characters there who provide the commentary, who provide the context, who help the audience understand how to feel. I mean, that's essentially what a rom-com sidekick is. Well, there was that hilarious piece from McSweeney's that you sent me, uh, written from the perspective of the sidekick, and one part of it says, even though, of course, we've known each other since childbirth, I love taking those long walks with you in the park where I ask you to tell me in detail about you know, all of these <laughs> moments of your life that I was there right alongside you and, of course, know all about. But I, I just like it when you repeat them to me. <laughs> oh, and yeah, don't let me talk about myself. I only only ever want to hear about you. And the end was just the sidekick going home to cry herself to sleep. <laughs> hmm. But yeah, that, I mean, that whole supportive unselfish friend thing is definitely one aspect of the sidekick's purpose. But they might also serve as a teacher or mentor. They might serve as the sounding board. So when Mel Gibson is doing something terrible, like listening to Lady Brains, he's got his buddy there who hears all of the stuff that Mel Gibson is doing. And, you know, we mentioned earlier that, hey, the sidekick is so appealing because he or she gets to be a mess. And Judith Roof, who's another one of those rom-com scholars that we've cited so often in the series already, uh, in her book, All About Thelma and Eve, Sidekicks and Third Wheels, which the preview for that on Google is is tragically brief. Um, but Judith Roof argues that because sidekicks are allowed to be neurotic messes, they actually represent the normative because they're enforcing through their more comic or perverse, so to speak, positions, just how normative the the straight man or the the protagonist is like, I'm kooky and crazy and maybe I'm too tall or too fat or too thin or whatever. But like, look at this handsome Cary Grant figure who's going to be the real hero and be cemented in heteronormative unions with the leading lady. So, OK, so if they have like an outsized, ridiculous character, then you're probably going to have a pretty vanilla leading lady. She's going to be in a cardigan. She's like, oh, Sandra, you're always hosting those random parties for holidays like Arbor Day. (laughs) And that, of course, at Arbor Day is where she ends up meeting Dermot McDilmont. No, that's not his name. (laughs) Please keep that. That's Dilmont McDermott. What's his name? Dermot Mulrooney. (laughs) You remember in the 90s when it was all Dills and McDoms? I don't know. 
I, uh, um, yeah. No. I'm just, <laughs> Caroline, I'm just trying to share with you. Caroline, I'm just trying to subtly workshop my new rom-com screenplay, Arbor Day. And apparently it's not flying. No, I think you literally just wrote some of the dialogue right there. Uh, one example of this whole like kooky sidekick with the straight man and woman uh, leading lady and man thing is the movie Two Can Play That Game, in which Shantae, played by Vivica Fox, and Keith, played by Morris Chestnut, are the straight woman and man to their best friends who are in real life comedians. You've got Wendy Raquel Robinson, Tamala Jones, Monique, and Anthony Anderson, all of whom are allowed to be loud, quirky, kooky, weird, funny, and inappropriate because the leading man and leading lady are supposed to be shown. And this is, this is super trope city with rom-coms across the board the you know the the two leading characters are supposed to have an unimpeded path to find each other they're not supposed to be having the same kind of kookiness that the sidekicks do <laughs> yeah they can't be having as good of a time yeah you know because you got to have a little drum with your rom so the sidekicks give you some calm <laughs> that's right right um one show that you've recently gotten me into oh it's so good that is a great example of Rom-coms, and yes, we are talking about sitcoms for a moment, but uh, how strong rom-coms also have strong sidekicks. Mm -hmm. Because, like, I think the best sidekicks, like, you know something more about them. They're not just, you know, there only in order to propel the protagonist along. And You're the Worst has Lindsay and Edgar, who are the two sidekicks, but they both get fully developed stories. Oh, Oh, God, that show, I... I feel so warm and squishy about that show. Like, I love it so much. And those characters, Lindsay and Edgar, I mean, new phone, who dis? Like, that show is so good. And you've got the two leading characters who are terrible people. And you've got Lindsay, who's like, she's terrible, but so sweet in her heart somewhere. And then Edgar, who's just like nothing but sweet and has a dash of PTSD from being a veteran. But... Oh, God, I think it's such a great example. And yes, it is a a show, a TV show, and it's not a movie. It's not a romantic comedy movie, but it is it fits in with everything we're talking about so well. So how do you think in that example, then, that Lindsay and Edgar being so well-rounded, like, improves the whole thing? Aside from them just being, like, enjoyable characters and really funny actors. But Mm -hmm. what do you think it is about, like, the strong sidekick that strengthens a rom-com altogether. I don't know. I mean, I think they I mean, they do serve a purpose of plugging in puzzle pieces when the lead characters are falling to bits. It does provide a little bit of comic relief to the drama, for instance, of Gretchen's depression that she battled this last season. Um, but I I don't know. I think it's it's nothing is riding on uh, Lindsay and Edgar getting getting together. Uh, so there's no pressure there. So they're allowed to have these winding, loopy storylines that go in all sorts of different angles and directions, whereas you know that the leading characters are supposed to be constantly heading towards each other. I don't know. It 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 spices things up, and because their characters are so great and fleshed out, you get to go on those crazy rides with them. Well, and that's an example, I would say, of... The trend that we're likelier to see in more modern rom-coms where the 
protagonist and possibly the sidekick, but definitely the protagonist is more of a train wreck than right. she used to be. You don't necessarily need a wild card sidekick to, uh, you know, at least spice up uh, plain Jane because she a mess already. I mean, think about uh, Kristen Wiig in Bridesmaids. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's train wreck the film <laughs> yeah and her i mean could you argue that her sidekick is her sister like this and she's w- way more of a straight character oh yeah yeah um i i was actually looking to see if i could find a list of sibling and child sidekicks because um a couple of those that also came to mind were um joseph gordon levitt's sister in 500 days of summer played by chloe Morenz. And then also for a kid, you have um, Abigail Breslin as Ryan Reynolds's daughter in Definitely Maybe, who's kind of sidekicky mm. in a way of propelling yeah. the narrative and is the, you know, kind of the sounding board yeah. for the main character and sort of challenges them to think about things. Um, and of course, in the case of Definitely Maybe and 500 Days of Summer, it's interesting to see where you have like these two male protagonists being led by these younger characters, you mm-hmm. know, like the wisdom of children. Right, 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 right. Um, and I mean, you've also got leading the charge, I feel like, uh, in this whole slacker sidekick turned leading man or woman is Judd Apatow. For men, anyway, a lot of his, as we talked in a previous, talked about in a previous episode, a lot of his female characters are still more of the serious straight character, but his dudes, they're all, I mean, like, look at Seth Rogen in Knocked Up. Yeah. Like, his totally goofy, slacker, stoner character would have been, would have made a great sidekick to some guy who's out searching for Katherine Heigl to be his soulmate. Well, and he was doing exactly that in uh, 40-Year-Old Virgin. Mm-hmm. I mean, he wasn't a nice sidekick to Dave Carell. Steve Carell, excuse me. Uh, I don't know, Dave Carell, <laughs> meanwhile. Um, but... He played almost the same character, but was just far more rude. And, yeah. A lot more facial hair. A lot more facial hair, yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. But speaking of dudes leading the charge in romantic comedies, you know, going through all of our uh, rom-com scholarship that we've been flipping through for weeks now. Don't you love rom-com scholarship, Caroline? No, I really do. I really honestly find myself just... Reading. I mean, just reading it instead of paging through looking for just the details to put in the notes. I just, usually Caroline just, just takes a book and puts it up to her, to her ear yeah. and lets it speak to her that way. I, I hear the ocean. Mm. Yeah, I hear the ocean when I listen to books. Uh, <laughs> uh, actually, I like to sleep with them open, just on my oh, face. Oh, that's smart. Yeah. Multitasker. The smell, the smell of the pages. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, uh, what's interesting when you look at not just the top 10 lists of great sidekicks and things like that, but when you get into these uh, academic takes on rom-coms, when they're discussing sidekicks, yes, they talk about women, but so much of it focuses on men, masculinity, and toying with sexuality, especially when it comes to those sex comedies of the 50s. And 60s. And this is coming from a couple of great sources we looked at. Jenna Weinman's chapter in Reading the Bromance, Homosocial Relationships in Film and Television, and John Alberti's Masculinity in the Contemporary Romantic Comedy, Gender as Genre. 
But basically, Weinman writes that these queer straight male pairings between a fetching male lead and a neurotic sidekick are super prevalent as a narrative fixture in those 50s and 60s Hollywood sex comedies. And there's even an industry term for these dude sidekicks, the second banana, yeah, which I really enjoy. But so, you know, we talked in our earlier episodes about how a lot of the tension in these movies, particularly those 50s and 60s sex comedies that were happening during the Hayes Code, during censorship, a lot of the tension came from that conflict between the dapper playboy who wants to avoid marriage and the prudish career woman who is not going to put out without a ring. And so the role that these sidekicks fill, especially for the male character, is to give us more insight into their true character, their true wishes, and to let them blow off steam. And so the actors whose names are frequently dropped when these rom-com scholars are discussing this trend uh, are Gig Young and Tony Randall. Uh, Weinman writes about how these guys basically played sexually ambiguous sidekick characters during this period as the second banana to the Cary Grant or the Rock Hudson. And, uh, well, sexually ambiguous uh, is kind of ironic, too, because Tony Randall was indeed gay, um, as was Rock Hudson. But I think because a lot of those sex comedies involved so much deception, as do so many rom-coms, the second bananas were really important for the audience to really know what the playboy was up to, because otherwise he would be completely unlikable. True. He would just be a super duper creep. I mean, in a lot of ways, watching them now as a 32 year old feminist, <laughs> they're super duper creeps. Um, but they are always emasculated too. like on the one hand, they, they're kind of the whole package like gig young from the, the movies I've seen of his that I can remember is a little bit more interesting because unlike Tony Randall, Gig Young is a little more conventionally attractive, but he is still like more vanilla than the Playboy. So mm-hmm. you can tell that he's not quite as dangerous and there's something about him that Doris Day just doesn't feel like is quite good enough for her, but obviously she can't go for the playboy because he's too dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of times with those playboy kinds of movies, the character like a rock Hudson has to soften his sexuality in order to court a Doris Day. He'll put on a pair of glasses, he'll lower his voice and pretend that he really doesn't actually want to have sex with her as soon as possible. And so. I, be, I believe it's Alberti, one of our uh, rom-com scholars, who suggests that these kinds of second bananas, the Gig Youngs and the Tony Randalls, still prop up Rock Hudson et al.'s virility, even while they're kind of having to downplay it. Because it's like, oh, well, we know that that he's still, you know, he's still sexy, even though he's he's pretending not to be quite as much. But the interesting thing with Gig Young is in the movie Desk Set, which is one of my favorites, starring Katherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy, because Gig Young plays Katherine Hepburn's fiance, mm-hmm. and he is way more attractive than Spencer Tracy. I've never really gotten the Spencer Tracy thing. I mean, he's like kind of charming, but like seriously. Uh, and the moment, though, where things finally flip, where Catherine Hepburn is done with Gig Young and is like, I'm not going to marry you, is not because 
he is not as interesting as the very charming and witty Spencer Tracy, but because he, Gig Young's character, ends up slut shaming Catherine Hepburn. Ooh. Yeah. And Spencer Tracy's like, uh oh. And so it was with that. Like his his masculinity became like too threatened, which was kind of a flip of more of the emasculated Tony Randall character who's mm-hmm. like, I'm so nervous about everything. I've got to see my analyst. Yeah. And so it does provide that comparison mm-hmm. for audiences to look at you and say, OK, well, you're too neurotic, weird, strange, nervous in the case of Tony Randall. And so look at how handsome and capable that playboy, especially when he's masquerading as a more sensitive guy, is. Well, and because at the time, too, with these sex comedies, you're still dancing around sex. Mm-hmm. It's all, all has to be hinted at. And you're also dancing around sexual orientation, too. Yes, that's something that Alberti writes about as far as the emasculated sidekick uh, displaying a collapse of masculinity that he says enables queer possibilities. And then Alberti goes on to write about how the sidekick can actually serve, in addition to all of the other purposes of helping further the storyline, get at the leading man's true motivations, he also might introduce a little bit of tension or conflict with the leading lady in competing with her for the lead's attention. Oh, yeah. As soon as like uh, uh, Rock Hudson sees a gig young on Doris Day's arm. He's like, oh, well, now I want to put some effort into it. Let me put on my glasses and soften my voice a little bit. Yeah. Uh, one example is gig young's character, Roger, in the film That Touch of Mink. He is often mistaken by the heroine's friends as the playboy hero who's actually played by Cary Grant, this guy, Philip. But... Tempering that potential mistake is the fact that Gig Young's analyst believes that his character is gay. Ha 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 ha. Oh, can you imagine? (laughs) (laughs) Slapstick. Another example is in the movie uh, Artists and Models from 1953. You've got Dean Martin's character who wants to move out of the apartment and the bedroom that he shares with Eugene Fullstack, played by Jerry Lewis. This is sounding like a total Burton Ernie situation. Uh, and so, well, they really ham it up because Eugene is standing in the doorway wearing an apron. He's crying because Rick is leaving. Rick's packing his suitcase, saying that divorce is the only way out. But Rick ends up not going through with it. He takes all of his clothes out of the suitcase and Eugene is shown smiling gratefully through his tears. And it I mean, it's exactly a play on like a more domestic man and woman marriage situation. Yeah, the whole series of Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis films would be way more homoerotic if Jerry Lewis weren't such a second banana. Yeah. Towards like there's no, 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 there's no way that Dean Martin is into that. Um, But. You do see this turned on its head a little bit with uh, Annie Hall, where Woody Allen's character, Alvy, is, of course, the neurotic mess as the leading man, while you have his sidekick, Rob, played by Tony Roberts, uh, being the suave, handsome, level-headed, masculine man who kind of reflects Alvy's idealized dude. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love that they they were such a pair, Roberts, went on to hold similar roles in Play It Again, Sam, Hannah and Her Sisters, and Stardust Memories. He was basically the the alpha handsome man dude in all of uh, Woody Allen's neurotic love 
comedies. I hope that that's what his Hollywood business card said <laughs> at the time. Alpha handsome man dude. <laughs> Service for hire. He did have a good beard. Although, you know, his hair was curly, so it's just like a ring of curls around his entire head. It's gonna, um, who's the, um, the gentle painting? ASMR? Bob Ross. Bob Ross. He had a very Bob Ross gen- look going <laughs> the on. The gentle painting. <laughs> well, we're gonna get into more, uh, gentlemen. Uh, namely in the slacker dude comedy genre when we come right back from a quick break. So when it comes to the relationships between the leading guy and his second banana, one of the most recent developments would be the bromance between the two because... Thankfully, there is not as much, you know, homophobia at work behind the scenes as there would have been in those sex comedies of the 50s and 60s. Um, and there's more room now for these men to have actual relationships with each other. Yeah. And I do think that there's something, you know, we talked about this way back when, Kristen, in our bromance episode, but there seems to be more of an acceptance of dudes Loving each other, hanging out, snuggling, having little snuggle parties. And that comes through in movies like I Love You, Man, where two men telling each other they loved each other would have been unthinkable in a Rock Hudson movie. Uh, and I'm also going to say it again. Magic Mike, oh, so... I think, is a rom-com, but it's totally a brom-com. Yeah. Those guys just love each other. They'll oil each other up. And it is... <laughs> Not awkward. They wrestle. <laughs> they hug. They love. Um, there's also Yumi and Dupree that fits into that as well with um, Luke Wilson. Nope. Owen Wilson. Always get them mixed up. I'm like, which one has the crooked nose? Oh, yes. Owen. Right? <laughs> Owen Wilson. Uh, where he is not so much in love with Kate Hudson. He doesn't show up for her, but for uh, the fella. And no matter how much more comfortable we and these male characters are getting with expressing bro love and having these homosocial relationships, uh, they still have in common with the sex comedies the immaturity. Uh, granted, with Rock Hudson or Cary Grant, it was not so much immaturity as we think about it. It was more like marriage is death. And I don't want to give up my bachelor lifestyle, whereas now it's like immaturity is more likely to reflect, uh, you know, I smoke pot and maybe I don't have a full time job or, you know, I'm a, I'm just a kooky guy who's never been in a serious relationship. Yeah. And the whole thing of you don't want to become boring and you don't want to become one of those people with kids, which I think isn't that even a movie. People with kids. I have no idea. You're listing so many movies that now I haven't seen. Wow. Yeah. I, I really think that this series has <laughs> helped my pop cultural knowledge just escalate. I know. We can have so many conversations at parties now if people would just invite us. So who wants to talk about sex comedies <laughs> of the 1950s? <laughs> Muriel, you? No? Okay. <laughs> is it Muriel? Oh, Muriel's Wedding. And then Rachel Griffiths is the sidekick in that movie? I don't know. See, I've got so much random stuff rattling around up there now. Um, 
But yeah, basically, uh, if we, if we go to rom-com scholar Jenna Weinman, she says that what the sex comedies and the bromances have in common is the quote, narrative privileging of the immature male, his homosocial bonds, and his strained trajectory into proper adulthood. But there's not as much focus on fixing the immature dude. Nobody's like telling him necessarily to stop smoking pot or like get married or whatever. But you still have the focus on the relationship, obviously, because it's a rom-com. But you also don't lose the second banana. The immature guy gets to keep his second banana and his bong and have the lady. Yeah, because I think there's also just more generally a focus on the importance of our friendships. It's yeah. like you, who who wants to know just like the couple who only knows each other? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like in old school when uh, Will Ferrell's character is married and he's like, oh, yeah, we've got a big Saturday planned going to uh, Bed Bath and Beyond. <laughs> it's going to be going to be pretty wild. It's like it's like that is the the nightmare these days. Although for the record, the older that I've gotten, yes, and early weekend morning trip to a Home Depot is rather nice. Yeah. No, boyfriend and I are the same, minus the early. Like, we can't get out of bed to save our lives. And then we have to sit around drinking coffee, and then it's like 2 o'clock, and it's like, you want to go to Home Depot? And then we're enraged because there's traffic and a million people at Home Depot. Also, I shouldn't say Home Depot. I should say your local gardening supply store. Buy small. Exactly. And speaking of small, Kristen. Ooh, I like yep, this transition. Yep, I've got a subset, which means a smaller portion of a of a set. I'm following. Yeah, here I am. Uh, rom-com scholar Billy Murnett, who has a rom-com blog, which I highly recommend you look at. Um, What's it called? Uh, it, well, oh, it's called Living the Romantic Comedy. Love it. So there you go. You can do the Google. Uh, but he talks about the snide kick. We mentioned the snide kick earlier. But he talks about people like uh, Nick Frost's character Ed in Shaun of the Dead, Bill Murray's character in Tootsie, Jason Lee as Banky in Chasing Amy, and Brittany Murphy, who we talked about turns into a snide kick once she finds herself. And these are people who they go beyond just supporting the leading woman or leading man, going beyond being a sounding board into highlighting the lead character's decisions or mistakes or whatever by being a complete snarky jerk. And, you know, Mernet at one point in this blog post argues that, you know, sarcasm is their primary function and maybe they don't have as big a role as other sidekicks. They're not as much of a driving plot device. I would say that I disagree, especially for Nick Frost's character in Shaun of the Dead, who is a massive, massive plot driver, especially at the end. Uh, anyway, I, I don't want to spoil Shaun of the Dead for is you. Is Shaun of the Dead a rom-com? Dude, totally. I mean, it's a total bromance. Uh-huh. But the whole time, Shaun is trying to save his lady love and get with her. And like the whole movie, as like zombies are attacking them, he's doing everything he can to like save her and charm her. And show that he's the hero. I had never thought of it that way. Oh, totally a rom-com. I love me some Simon Pegg. Uh, and also, I just love the scene in that movie where they're in the pub and Queen is playing. And to the beat of the Queen song, they're beating up the zombie. Anywho. Uh, yeah, I think Shaun of the Dead is an excellent example of the bromance with the slacker second banana. And also being a traditional rom-com. And a snide kick. And Ed, Ed, 
is a snidekick, yes. But then, of course, uh, beyond the subset of snidekick, you've also got what is unfortunately a subset of a best friend who is a person of color. Yeah, the old token black friend. Yeah, token black friend, token John Cho, because people aren't putting that many Asian characters in films either as the leading person. Uh, Ashley Reese over at Girl wrote a lot about this and pointed out that you've got like, oh, I don't know, like a Kadeem Hardison who plays Felix in Maid of Honor or Tamika Fraser in uh, Head Over Heels who plays Holly. But they basically serve, I mean, we're not telling you anything you don't know, but they're a way to introduce diversity without having to invest too much into a character. Yeah, so it's like uh, Dave Chappelle in You've Got Mail is mm-hmm. Tom Hanks's sidekick. And from what I can remember, he is the only person of color with a speaking role in the whole film. But more recently, you've got LeBron James in Trainwreck, yeah. who is really funny. I got to say, he's one of the funniest athlete comedians that I've seen lately. Um, and maybe because the film is so uh, intentional in a lot of the tropes that it's playing on and busting up. Perhaps that was a deliberate choice. Um, But LeBron definitely felt like it in some ways because it's not like Amy Schumer has a diverse cast of friends. Right. Yeah, exactly. No, I loved, uh, yeah, I loved LeBron's character in that movie. But, you know, relying on the sidekick, the second banana, to be a person of color, it's just a way of, like checking off a box and not having to to think about it much more because there is that tipping point that so many people in Hollywood talk about of, uh, you know, like one black friend is fine, but like you can't have a second black friend and you certainly can't have a black protagonist and like a second black person in a leading role. Because uh, if you look at Hitch, there's so much written about Hitch, for instance, and we're going to talk about this, all of this, these racial issues in our next episode, but like. Oh, the leading man is black. We can't have a black leading lady because it's a black movie. But if you have a white leading lady, then it's an interracial romance, which is even more taboo for Hollywood. Again, we're just spoiling the the next (laughs) installment of our rom-com series. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, so if you look at it according to gender, though, I mean, like you've got black men playing the super chill spirit guide, basically, to the nervous white man leading man. Uh, but, of course, black women who are in the best friend role so many times have to play that sassy black woman or angry black woman sidekick character, which sucks because, as Ashley Reese points out, like this can so easily veer off into playing off of stereotypes about the angry black woman and the character ending up being treated as nothing more than a caricature. Well, and I think uh, for me, at least one of the most cringeworthy examples of that is Jennifer Hudson in the first Sex and the City movie. Yeah. Where there was almost a record scratch when she, you know, walks on screen because it's like, oh, really? Are we going to do that? Like nothing against Jennifer Hudson's acting capabilities, But the way that she was played and the bits of wisdom that she would, you know, drop for Carrie Bradshaw here and there. I was like, oh, come on. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if whether they're uh, forced to be the sassy sidekick or not, 
they often have to help the white lady's transformation. And so, yeah, you do have Jennifer Hudson straightening Carrie Bradshaw's life out. Uh, you also have Carrie Washington's character in Save the Last Dance. Uh, straightening out Julia Stiles' life and her fashion choices so that Julia Stiles can go to the club and be a successful dancer. Although maybe slightly to redeem Sex and the City, Carrie Bradshaw does help Jennifer Hudson's character work out her life, love life and get back with her, I think, ex-fiance. So at least at least she gets something sort of of a backstory. That's true. She gets like a bit of a story. Yeah. Good. Well, that's good. Um, and I love, though, that Tina Fey mocked this in that episode of 30 Rock where she's on the airplane and she's taken so many anti-anxiety pills that she hallucinates that she's sitting next to Oprah and spills all of her life problems, all of her white lady life problems to Guru Oprah, uh, only to then be revealed that actually she's just high and it's a teen girl sitting next to her. Oh, Tina. So perfect. You know, uh, one thing that I really love about Kimmy Schmidt, which again, to go to TV off uh, the big screen to the small screen, is that Titus Andromedon could be a sidekick if the writers were not as smart as they are. Yeah. He, yes, because he gets his own fabulous, amazing Wonderful, hilarious stories. Yeah. I love him so much. Otherwise, he would totally fall into the token gay guy. Yeah. Because that's come up so many times. Hello, Rupert Everett in my best friend's wedding, who, yes, I did have a crush on. Okay, I did. Oh, God, yeah. <sighs> oh, because he, he was co-starring with, with Dermot Mildingdong in that movie, right? Yes, Dilmont. Dilmont. Uh, <laughs> with Dilmont McDoodle, yes. <laughs> I mean, and there's a whole movie about that, though, <laughs> with uh, Jennifer Aniston and Paul Rudd, The Object of My Affection. Yeah. Which is, it's a toughie to watch. Mm-hmm. Awkward. Because, again, too, it's like, well, if Paul Rudd were my roommate, that'd be, I'd need to move out. Because <laughs> he's so handsome. He is so handsome. And he's Ant-Man. But, you know, not not every gay sidekick can be Ant-Man. But the gay sidekick is typically in the in the exact same way that the token black friend is the way to check off the diversity box. The gay best friend or gay sidekick. Uh, and do, don't we have a whole episode about this, too? Yeah. 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 The gay best friend. Totally. Um, and they're a way to, like, introduce or deal with LGBT issues without having to make it the central theme of the film. Like, oh, God, we don't want to make a a gay rom-com. Who's going to watch that? But it also makes the protagonist interesting because, look, she has diverse friends. Yeah. Um, And I would think that both Stanley Tucci in The Devil Wears Prada and Elijah Wood in Celeste and Jesse Forever play similar kinds of not necessarily gay best friend roles, but more of uh, the gay guru who at some point like grabs protagonist by the shoulders mm-hmm. figuratively and is like, listen, I'm going to like tell you what you're doing right now. And you're going to listen to me because there is no sexual tension between us. And you know that what I'm telling you is like purely motivated yeah and so i mean by having a gay best friend and having like a gay spirit guide that's that definitely feels exploitive same with having like a token black 
sidekick who's some kind of magical spirit guide. But that's also one of the roles that the sidekick trope is supposed to fulfill no matter the background. Yeah. I mean, and I didn't I didn't feel like Tucci or Wood's roles were exploitive necessarily. It's just it, it seems like they're that that um, sexuality or sexual orientation, I should say, is played with in a way that like they that's the conduit like yeah you know because they're the ones who are able to call bs on things because it's like listen i have i have no ulterior motives in any of this like you're you're just being ridiculous right now yeah and i think i i think where some of the discomfort comes from is just the history honestly just the history of the way that black sidekicks and gay, or, you know, ambiguous. Like Tony Excuse Randall's, me. yeah. yeah. Uh, the way that these people were portrayed as sidekicks in throughout history in cinema has not always been very pure. And so, like, it's great that, you know, a leading man can have a gay best friend. And it's not even an issue. It's, like, literally not even a plot device at all. It's just, it just is. Uh, but some of those tropes origins are not so great well and that's why i'm glad that the final two episodes of our rom-com series are going to focus on people of color and rom-coms and also lgbt rom-coms to see what happens when those characters become less of tropes and more like fully fleshed out characters but before we bid a fond farewell to our sidekicks caroline i want to get your thoughts on a theory of mine that I just came up with. Okay. Right before we came into the studio, that the most successful sidekick in Hollywood to make the transition from sidekick to quirky leading lady is none other than Zoe De Chanel. Oh, I thought you were going to say Melissa McCarthy, but ah, uh, yes, but not as much yeah. for Melissa McCarthy because Zoe D was the quirky sidekick in Failure to Launch. Oh, God. Yes. I didn't. I refused to see that movie, so I didn't know that. Google told me. <laughs> um, but who, now, who of course. Is this Google? Well, uh, here he's single. <laughs> um, but she was even able to parlay her quirky sidekick persona into a successful romantic lead. Although, of course, she had to get a little bit edgier um, for 500 Days of Summer. Um, mm-hmm. But if you look at her, again, going to the small screen on New Girl, I mean, it's like a sidekick starring in her own show. Adorkable. So adorkable. So I wonder if we are now entering the era of the sidekick. Ooh, sure. I say we are. You know? That sounds good. How about that? Yeah. I think it's true. I think that's a think piece that the Atlantic <laughs> could chew on. Uh, but now, listeners, who are your favorite sidekicks? And what sidekicks did we leave out? I mean, we didn't even mention Ducky from 16 Candles. Aw, poor Ducky. Oh, Ducky. We, we, we didn't even... We also didn't mention Rosie O'Donnell know, in uh, Sleepless in Seattle, which is kind of sad because she just gets left behind. No, Ducky's in Pretty in Pink. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank and you. And Annie Potts is the fellow sidekick in Pretty in Pink. Oh. And I just love her in that movie. That's a good duo. Yeah. Well, now I want to hear from you listeners. What are all of your sidekick theories and who are all your sidekick faves? And which sidekicks do you think 
deserve their own movies. MomStuffAtHowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. Trips to the post office are never convenient, so why not finally get that postage right from your desk with Stamps.com? Stamps gives you special postage discounts you can't get at the post office, including first class, priority mail, express, international, and more. You will never pay full price for postage again. And here's how it works. Using your own computer and printer, you buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package. It's that easy. And right now, Stuff I've Never Told You listeners can sign up for Stamps.com with our promo code STUFF for a four-week trial with a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Get started with Stamps.com today. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in STUFF. That's Stamps.com. Enter STUFF. And now, back to the show. All right, I have a letter here from Anna about our STD testing episode. She says, I was inspired to share my story relating to slut-shaming, prude-shaming, and the stigma of having an STD. When I was a freshman in college, I developed a bumpy rash on my labia. It was extremely painful, and my mom told me to go to an urgent care center like a doctor's office where no appointments needed. She came with me, and the nurses tested my urine for a UTI, which came out positive. At that time in my life, I had never experienced any sexual contact, so the idea of having an STD was out of the question, but it seemed weird for a UTI to cause a rash. I began to experience a weird mix of both slut-shaming and prude-shaming. The nurses and the doctors didn't believe what I told them about my lack of sexual contact, but also judged me for never visiting a gynecologist. I was barely 18. The nurse told me the doctor wanted to perform a pelvic exam, and I felt very much pressured into agreeing. It was my first exam ever. I was never told that I was going to be tested until the doctor began testing me for herpes, chlamydia, and gonorrhea. After the exam, the doctor spoke to me alone and told me it takes two weeks for the herpes test to come back, but I've seen herpes before and you have it. He shrugged off all my protests, not once believing what I told him. I cried the whole night through and felt like the scum of the earth for the next two weeks. When the tests all came back negative, I was left with a mystery that still hasn't been solved four years later. While my story has a happy ending, I very much want to encourage people with STDs and STIs to remember that you are worth being loved, respected, and appreciated. I told a select few people during the ordeal and was overwhelmed at the support I received. It wasn't until after it was all over that I realized how wrong the whole thing was. As women, I think we're usually very hesitant to be assertive at the doctor's office, but don't be afraid. I will never again leave a doctor's office more confused than I was entering. Now that I'm in a long-term monogamous relationship, I never thought that getting tested again would be important, but after my experience, I will definitely be using my lab box because not only is getting tested important for personal health, but for increasing awareness and understanding to reduce the stigma about something that is so, so common. I'm sorry this was so long, but I feel like it's an important story to tell because women tend to face lower quality healthcare as it is, and adding the stigma of an STD can make it even worse. Because of this, my lab box sounds like a genius idea, and if you go to a doctor, speak up and make sure your doctor understands your questions. Well, so thank you very much, Anna. So I've got a letter here from Hannah about our episode on the mothers of gynecology. And Hannah writes, I'm a student at the University of South Carolina, where Sims is a name I've definitely heard many times. And for listeners who haven't heard that episode, the Sims she refers to is Marion J. Sims, who's referred to as the father of gynecology. 
The main building in the women's quad on campus is named after him, which, if, which I find eye-roll worthy at best and gag worthy at worst. There's also a large monument to him on the State House grounds just down from campus, where many times I've stopped while walking around the park there. The first time I saw it and saw Father of Gynecology, I couldn't believe there was a Father of Gynecology. I have no idea how one goes about getting a statue erected, but I am all for it. I can already see how those three women could be incorporated into this monument at the State House. Having something be done about it in the name of the women's quad building would make me so happy as well, but I know when it comes to naming buildings, it's all about money, which, let's face it, I'm a college junior. Also, if I've learned one thing in my attempts at activist work in various fields my last two years at USC, it's that it's complicated and an overwhelming mess. It's easy for me to get fired up and say, I want to make a change to see these Sims monuments, but I realize the likelihood of these things isn't great on my own. I am, however, a sort of member of the Feminist Collective at USC, and I'm almost positive that if y'all seriously looked into getting these women some recognition at any of the monuments in South Carolina, they would be interested. Keep being amazing. Well, listeners, uh, we've got one person here, Hannah, who agrees that there should be some Mothers of Gynecology monuments to counter J. Marion Sims's father of gynecology monuments that are all over South Carolina. So if anyone knows how to make that happen, let us know. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn more about rom-com sidekicks, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 